This is Creative Mornings, a new podcast showcasing the global creative community. This episode is brought to you by MailChimp. MailChimp helps businesses grow. If you're just getting started or you're already building a growing business, MailChimp makes it easy to connect with your customers and sell more stuff. It's totally free to get started, no expiring trial, and no credit card required. For more sophisticated marketers, pro features like multivariate testing offer the same power you'd expect in an enterprise marketing platform in an intuitive, easy-to-use interface. Learn more at MailChimp.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the Creative Mornings Podcast. This is Matt, and this week's episode is a bit more than just a dose of morning inspiration. It's a glimpse into one person's ability to stay creative and positive through an incredibly difficult reality. Our speaker is Tiva Harrison, who spoke at Creative Mornings Toronto in December of last year, 2015, as part of a series on time. Tiva is an artist and writer living with stage four metastatic cancer. Her lecture is brief but powerful, and since, we've seen the release of her new book called In Between Days, which was actually released the week we spoke on the phone. So congratulations are in order. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. What's it been like to put out the new book? Um, it's my first book, so it's all new. Right. It's been pretty um, fantastic and, and busy. It's been like a whirlwind. Um, we've been quite lucky to get a fair bit of media, so it's been it's been very busy. Your lecture is so well said and so moving, and I don't want to deprive listeners the experience that I had when I first heard it. So I'm going to do significantly less talking than I normally do in the beginning yeah. of an episode. Um, but since In Between Days wasn't out yet at the time, can you tell us a little bit about the book? Sure thing. Um, I've written a memoir about living with stage four metastatic cancer that's told in a combination of comic books that I wrote and drew and personal essays. And it explores treatment and it explores uh, family history and relationship with my family, my husband, society, hopes and dreams. So it's um, a little bit expansive, yet still around the, the experiences of trying to figure out how to move forward with cancer. And like I said, I'm going to stop talking here. We'll let your lecture speak for itself, and then uh, you and I can catch up afterwards. You bet. Thank you so much. So here's Tiva Harrison from December of 2015 at Creative Mornings Toronto. I'm here today to talk about time. To me, the most important thing about time is recognizing it. The way I recognize time is by taking a pause. So now... Now that we're all together, settled into this room, let's take a pause together. There's a technique I like that's meant to bring us all into the moment. It's a breathing exercise called samavriti, or equal breathing. That means inhaling and exhaling for the, for the same amount of time. I like to count to four. So please join me and breathe in and out of your nose, four counts each, for four breaths. Inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, inhale, 
exhale. We sit here in this space, taking time. This breathing exercise is about counting time. One way to recognize time, to mark time, it's a way to be in the moment. Thanks so much. Now, let me ask you a question. Raise your hand if you checked your phone before you brushed your teeth. You brushed your teeth, right? <laughs> um, me too. And did it make your heart race a little, slipping already into the business of the day? Last year, in an Ipsos poll conducted on behalf of Google, Canadians self-reported that they spend an average of nearly 90% of their free time, or about seven hours a day, staring at one of the many screens they own often more than one at the same time. So is this maximizing efficiency or wasting time? Where do we draw the line? In that same survey, respondents said that they spent only 14% of their leisure time daily listening to the radio, reading the printed page, or enjoying other non-digital activities. What's the difference between passing time and spending time, between passive and active leisure time. How do we define free time? Is it when we aren't working? And how do we define work? Let me tell you a bit about myself. I used to have an amazing job. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with myself, but I wanted to work for a big, positive change, and I wanted to be creative. Big, vague ideas that I expect most of you share. I didn't care about making a lot of money, but I wanted to be comfortable. I wanted to be helping to protect the natural world for future generations. So I looked and looked until I found a job direct marketing at the Nature Conservancy of Canada. It wasn't a job I wanted to do forever but it was a place that I wanted to be. Once I was there, I worked, and I worked, and I worked, doing the job I'd been hired for, while I looked for ways to make it more the job I wanted it to be. The job evolved, so did the team, and I eventually found myself in charge of the organization's first dedicated marketing team. It was a dream to me. I could see so clearly how this fantastic organization could be made to be more nationally known for all the good work it was doing, and I was going to get to help make that happen. But I was so busy, and getting the new team going was so much work, and I was so tired all the time, and my back was killing me. I figured it must be stress, that I wasn't taking enough time to take care of myself because there's never enough time for all the work, perhaps especially in the charitable sector. And for me, the first thing to go is usually self-care. I was only a few months into my exciting new role when I was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer that had already metastasized or spread to local lymph nodes and distant bones. To here, 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 
and here. Stage four means that it's incurable, a lifelong, hopefully, chronic illness. No wonder my back hurt. Time ground to a halt. Suddenly, instead of racing from meeting to meeting, staying late to do the work generated in those meetings, never enough time for all the work, I was sitting in waiting rooms. And I was waiting. Time stretched out in a bleak expanse. I had been forcibly slowed down. And sitting still, quietly waiting, that's when the fear crowded in, the anxiety, the depression, because it was just me, a room full of other cancer patients, and my thoughts, so many thoughts. And when treatment began, I tried to work. But being a cancer patient can be a full-time job, and I hadn't yet learned how to balance the pace of the office with the greedy patients required by the hospital. So I had to let work go. And I was cast adrift, out of time. I was untethered to most of my former life, holding on by a thread to my husband, my home, my need to continue to exist. And that's when I stepped sideways and existed outside of time, as we know it, for a while. I drifted in a Netflix haze through entire seasons of The West Wing, all of them. <laughs> Day would turn to night. I'd only shower and get dressed if I had to go to the hospital. My husband would leave for work, come home. I'd be exactly where he left me on the sofa, lost in some vampire space cop show. Um, I slept through entire days. I canceled plans. Nobody complained. You see, when you're really sick, nobody's going to push you to do anything. Nobody makes you get up and go outside. People are very gentle. So when I realized that I might only have a couple of years left and I just wasted a couple months wallowing. I started to panic. A sense of urgency burnt through me like a wildfire. I had to start making the most of whatever time I had left, because the median survival time for my late-stage disease is three years from diagnosis, and I was wasting time. At least that's how I felt. Of course I know that grieving is not a waste of time, and grieving oneself is poorly charted territory. But I felt like I was going to lose my mind if I didn't do something. And since nobody was going to make me, I had to make myself get up and have a day. A long time ago, before I learned to be pragmatic and got jobs, I studied art. I was even a working artist for a while, before the allure of a steady paycheck seduced me into an arts administration job, and there I stayed. I told myself that I'd make art in the evenings, the weekends, the in-between times. Sometimes that worked better than other times. I had fits of productivity 
a show here, a bunch of screen printed t-shirts there. I'd draw things we needed as graphic elements at work or do a little bit of layout myself. But as my career progressed, I was finding less time to do art on my own time, and I was doing less and less actual creative work, and more and more forecasting, budgeting, and management. And when I got sick, I couldn't imagine sitting in a room talking about budgets and five-year planning that I wasn't sure I would be around to see. I talked to our head of human resources, and he told me what I think I already knew, that I needed to live the next couple years as if they're all I have, because they might be. And then, if I'm lucky, because some people are, I'll get to stick around and do more living. But what exactly does it mean to use my time well? And what exactly does it take to make me do it? At first, it was crippling to even think about it. Thinking about time was the scariest thing to me. Because I could feel it slipping away and I wanted, still want, so much more of it. How could I possibly fit everything I wanted to do, to be, into three years, or even five. It was enough to make me crawl back in bed and go right back to sleep. Um, <laughs> I was debilitated by the desire to be my best self. And why was it that the self I was before diagnosis, the director of marketing at a wonderful national charity, with an amazing husband and family, interesting friends, a fairly comfortable life. Why wasn't that self enough now? Now that I had some idea that my expiration date was fast approaching. Because I was convinced that by taking jobs with their comfortable benefits and salaried security, I'd taken the wrong path. Despite the fact that my steady jobs had often been tenuous at best, having mostly been in the charitable sector, I felt that I'd taken the easy road. Never one to set up camp in regret, I found myself face to face with giant, seemingly insurmountable regret. I suddenly realized that I had been wasting my time, not because I'd been frittering it away on social media, although I do my fair share of that. No. I'd been frittering away the talents I was born with. I wasn't making art. I had wasted so much time. And here I stood at the intersection of time past and time finite. And I was being crushed from both directions. In order to draw myself forward, I began to draw. This was nothing like the art I used to make, big, colorful, abstract things, where I repeated the shapes of my dreams, of my memories, shapes that reflected the rocks, lands, and trees of my youth in Oregon in ways that only I could see. It was nothing at all like that. 
I'm, I'm not sure that I could have started smaller. The previous summer, I went to the Arctic on an Into the Northwest Passage adventure. Of course, I was bowled over by the sheer scale of exposed rock, by the startling blue of sun on an iceberg, by the majestic grace of narwhals and polar bears. It was transformational and humbling. What I hadn't expected was the flowering tundra, the tiny, perfect plants that grow, wind-flattened, we were above the tree line after all, all across the rocky terrain. And I fell in love with these plants, so small, so much beauty, such a short season. They have so little time, and yet they're strong, they're resilient, they persist. I'd lain on my stomach every time we went to shore, peering into their cupping petals. And of course, I took hundreds of pictures, wearing out the macro setting on my camera. So when I got sick and very depressed, and I couldn't find my way out, I started to draw these tiny flowers. My drawings were small, but they weren't to scale, not at all. The flowers were so much smaller. I would get lost in their details. I drew and drew. I idly thought I might turn them into a coloring book, but that, that wasn't the point of it. It gave me a purpose. And even though it was all I could do, to draw these tiny, pretty things. It was enough. I started to feel better. Why? Because there's something in drawing that is so deeply nourishing to me that the very act of taking pen to paper was starting to heal me. I couldn't go back. I never can. But in the act of looking, of seeing, translating through my body to the page, I was doing two important things. I was doing something that wasn't just ruminating, and I was renewing my body's relationship with drawing. That meant that when I realized that I had something I felt that I needed to say, my hands remembered how. Because the right time, isn't always here. Sometimes it's about doing the right thing until the right time comes along. It took months of this before I finally started to draw about cancer. First, I had to learn how to talk about it. And that took a whole bunch of therapy and no small measure of time. In order to figure out how to move forward, with incurable cancer, I needed to work through a lot of complicated emotions. And I needed to figure out where I went wrong in learning how to cope. I was seeing a therapist every week to try to at least whittle the depression my disease caused me to a manageable level. And after these sessions, I would go home and draw. 
I got a referral to a mindfulness-based cognitive therapy class for cancer patients and learned to be still with my thoughts, to acknowledge them, yet not be so deeply emotional all the time, because it's exhausting and it's a feedback loop of pain. Eventually, after every few flowers I drew, I would draw a comic about my childhood. Sometimes the memories were good ones, but mostly I was purging my worst memories from my, from my head. It, it felt like a cleansing. In a way, this drawing was meditation, but it was also a much-needed escape from the present. Dwelling in the past, be it a trip taken just before diagnosis or long past memories, was a way of not thinking about cancer. <coughs> Then I went to a retreat with Young Adult Cancer Canada. For the first time, I sat in a group of other young adults with advanced cancer, and for the first time, I felt like I could open up about the depths of my fears. I knew that I'd be understood. I had been keeping a lot to myself. I was afraid to talk about the depths of my grief because I didn't want to pull anyone else down with me. And really, what could they do, cure my cancer? <laughs> But because we shared an experience, I found it incredibly liberating to speak candidly, out loud, and to be heard. When I got home from that weekend retreat, I started to draw about cancer. This was the first drawing I made about living with cancer. I have always been fascinated by the viscosity of the spaces between, between people, between ideas, between one person's understanding of any given word and another's. Now that I have cancer, I exist entirely in the in-between spaces. And it's hard to know, at any given moment, how close I am to the edges. And the drawings began to pour out of my hands. The feelings that were surfacing at therapy, the fears I was ruminating over, the absurdity of suddenly finding myself living in hospital corridors, my, my anger at being so sick, Drawing gave me a place to channel all of it, and all the waiting gave me time. After a couple months of quietly drawing for myself, I showed my drawings to a friend who also lives with metastatic cancer. She encouraged me to share them, and I began to think that maybe they could help other people living with cancer. This disease can be very isolating. Maybe they could help people to not feel so alone, and maybe they could help people who love people with cancer to better understand them. Maybe they could, maybe they could even help get conversations going between loved ones and even between doctors and patients. A lot of the information about what it's like to live with cancer is written by or for an older demographic, for a patient in a very different phase of life than mine. I could find very little information when I was first diagnosed that I felt relevant to my experience.
but especially that talked candidly about how it feels to be sick. I told my friend, I'd think about how to share my drawings. It made sense to me to put them online and let whoever wanted or needed to see them to find them. So I built a simple website. I posted a link on social media, got some attention. A couple weeks later, the online editor at the Walrus magazine asked if I'd like to migrate my drawings over to their website as an open-ended series. Of course, I said yes. Uh, my brand new blog couldn't possibly attract as many readers as Canada's Best Magazine, and my goal was to get the drawings to people they could somehow help. This much bigger platform almost immediately translated into more engagement when, C when CBC's The 180 asked me to come on air to discuss my changing, my <laughs> changing perspective on animal testing in regard to developing medications. A lifelong vegetarian, I'm still somehow proud that PETA offered a retort. Such a clear example of the gray areas that I necessarily live in, as we all do, I think. The time I'd spent with my new work, the artwork and the writing, I'd been doing about cancer also drew the attention of the publisher at the House of Anansi Press, who was interested in putting out a book that combined those drawings and more with related essays. I leapt at the opportunity. This book is so much at once, a chance to help, to give back to the many people who have supported me since diagnosis, a chance to leave chance to, to leave something behind, something tangible, and an opportunity to spend my time writing and drawing. A book is a special kind of legacy, one you can hold and share and revisit. What a gift. And for most of the past year, sometimes it has felt like all I do is work on the book, but that's not complaining. Having this project has made me feel much less adrift. It's given me something to fill the time I have, but also something to help make sense of my situation. It's given me a purpose. If you're interested, the book is coming to your favorite local independent bookstore in April next year. <laughs> Where I used to go to an office and hold meetings, scheduled within an inch of my life, Now I'm on the hospital schedule, and in between, I draw and write. It's perfect because it's so flexible. I wrote part of this talk on my phone in the waiting room. And where in an office, you really need to show up and work your full day. Sometimes I'm just not up for a full day. I get tired easily. I have found a wonderful flexibility in these projects. I can write and draw when I have energy, and I can rest when I need to. And I swear, drawing gives me more energy than it takes away. If the drugs just didn't make me tired, I feel like I could do anything. But the reality is I can't. My energy is finite, and I have to choose what I do. My priorities have included creating, 
spending time with my favorite people, traveling, and talking to people about the impact of metastatic cancer, because I think it's not well understood. I feel that by adding to the conversation, I'm increasing awareness. <coughs> to that end, I participated in a short video project with Rethink Breast Cancer, where they asked me to talk about what legacy means to me now. Because the thing about having a finite amount of time is that it forces me to think about legacy. Time is no longer abstract to me. So, what are the takeaways? Hopefully, none of you will get kicked in the ass by cancer. So what's useful here for you? Before I was diagnosed, time felt abstract. I feel now that I was wasting time. But then I found reasons to not be doing the thing I was most meant to be doing. I had other things to do that felt important, that felt true. Cancer taught me that time is real, time is finite. It also taught me to look inside myself, to discover my passion, my goals, the things I had to offer. It showed me aspects of myself that I had set aside because I was too busy. Even without cancer, we all get caught up in the daily grind. It's easy to not do the thing that matters most. But why? Time is yours to spend, not waste. So, how to apply this to your life? What can you pluck out of my story that's useful? Don't wait. Live for today. Be your best self now. You have all the time you need. Use it. Thank you. So Tiva, I'm obligated to run a commercial after your talk here, but I feel like before I try to sell something to the audience, we can maybe cut the tension a little bit. Do you, do you happen to know any jokes you could tell? <laughs> um, I only know really, really rude jokes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. Don't worry about it. We could, well, let's do the business thing. And this episode is also made possible by Envision. I'm on the phone with Aaron Walter, former general manager of new products at MailChimp and currently the VP of design education at Envision. I was a, an Envision customer for years and I saw how it changed the way that we worked at MailChimp. And aside from the professionals, I feel like Envision is also perfect for that one friend we all have who keeps coming up with different app ideas. Yeah, I mean, if you're just working through an idea that you have, you can start to sketch out those ideas uh, on paper. You could start to sketch out those ideas in Photoshop and you can upload those screens into Envision and stitch them together in such a seamless way with animated transitions. It, it, it looks so real. You can't tell that you're using a, a prototype, that it's just you're faking it. And you don't need some huge corporate budget to get started. Yeah, so there's a free account and you can sign up and just get started using. You've got a, a limited number of prototypes that you can create, but um, you get 
pretty much all the features of the product very quickly. Giving teams the freedom to prototype, review, iterate, manage, and user test web and mobile products without a single line of code, Envision helps 2 million designers at companies like Evernote, Adobe, Twitter, and Salesforce unlock the power of design-driven product development. Follow the company on Twitter at Envision App. So first things first, Tiva, how are you feeling today? I'm still stable. Okay. I'm still on the same clinical trial I was on when I gave the talk. I am um, I'm hanging in there. I'm doing pretty well. Good. Thank you. Was this one of many public speaking engagements for you, or was this, um, was this a unique experience? It was a unique experience to me because um, I've done public speaking in the past, but when I did public speaking in the past, it was representing an organization I worked for. I did a lot of work for charities in the past, and... It's very different speaking about your your personal experience. This was my first time speaking since I was diagnosed with cancer. So it, it was incredibly meaningful to me. At the end of your lecture, you say that one of the ways you're spending your time now is by talking about the impact of metastatic cancer. And you say it's not well understood. So if you agree, um, I think this would be a good time to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Metastatic breast cancer is stage four breast cancer. It's when cancer has spread from the primary tumor to other parts of the body and involved other organs. And it's, it's the kind that kills. Earlier stages have a shot at being cured, at being eliminated. But with metastatic cancer, all it can be is managed. And the, the, the median survival time for metastatic breast cancer is two to three years since diagnosis. So it's, um, it's quite serious and it's quite frightening. But I think one of the things that really isn't understood is that, I mean, look at me, I don't look like a cancer patient. And it's, it's because I'm not undergoing the kind of harsh chemo that they use for cure purposes, the kind that makes your hair, your eyebrows, maybe your nails fall out. Um, I, will, I will probably get there when I run out of these sort of gentle early stage treatments they, they they give people who have, you know, cancer with, um, with a receptor positivity. Receptor positivities are when the cancer is fed by estrogen or progestin or is um, HER2 positive, which mine is not, unfortunately, um, because that would give me whole other treatments before I get to chemo. Um, there are thousands of people in Canada, about 40,000 people in America. Uh, my numbers may not be quite up to date who die of this stage disease every year. And research, only only 7% of research funding is targeted specifically toward metastatic breast cancer. So I am hoping that by talking, by raising awareness, um, maybe a little bit more funding will go into research and maybe more treatments will become available to either help with maintenance or to potentially get rid of the cancer. That's like a dream to me to, to, to potentially live without cancer. So um, putting my faith in science and hoping for more research. And so our listeners are aware before I wrap up the episode a little later on, I'll be listing off a couple of organizations where you can all learn more and donate if you feel the need. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. And I'd like to change gears for a second because you are an artist. And the question we ask all of our guests is, how do you challenge yourself creatively? But you're clearly dealing with much bigger challenges in your life. Um, you know, 
Right now, I feel like my challenges are predominantly physical. I have some limitations in terms of how much energy I have to spend in my creative pursuits. Um, I like I'm a, I draw, and my my hands um, don't always work for more than a, a few hours at a time um, because I take a medication to manage my cancer that affects my joints. So I have to really grab the time when it's right and spend it in the best way possible. And drawing has been one of the best ways for me to sort of manage my own moods and my own emotions around my, my illness. It's been like a conduit for processing, <laughs> which is amazing. It's amazing to have that at my disposal. Um, so really time and managing time and using it well is my biggest challenge. Um, because I've been, since I got sick, just really eager to spend my time creatively. I think it was much more of a struggle for me before when I felt like I had this expansive time ahead of me to do whatever I want. And now that I feel like it's finite, a lot of my my procrastination is just kind of magically gone. It's very, I was <laughs> going to say lucky. It's not really lucky, but the creative outcome has been lucky. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And so beyond your work with the walrus and the recent book release, is there anything that's that you're working on that's just for you? There, um, there's, yes. I'm actually working on a completely fun project right now. I'm, I'm making a coloring book that is completely about things that delight me. Having spent all of this time drawing about cancer and processing all these heavy or complicated emotions, I'm having a really fun time drawing things like flowers and dinosaurs eating cake while the volcanoes erupt behind them. <laughs> Just whimsical things that, that make me happy. And I, I'm hopeful that once they're all done and found, they'll be really fun for other people too. And super timely because this has been a fun time for coloring books. There's a real trend going on right now for adults. Yeah, that's the best thing. And and this will be an adult coloring book. Not quite as adult as like the gangster rapper coloring book, which is a favorite <laughs> of mine. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, Tiva, I'm so glad this lecture made it to our podcast. And mm. it was such a pleasure speaking with you. I really wish you all the best. Likewise. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I hope you'll look us up if the book tour takes you through New York at all. Perfect. Thank you again. And take really good care. You too. Bye-bye. <laughs> If you're in a position to help out, Tiva can use it, and there's a dedicated page on her website for donations. Just go to tivaharrison.com slash donate. If you're not quite sure how to spell her name, it's in today's episode description. You can follow Tiva on Twitter, at RobotPilot. And if you'd like to learn more about metastatic breast cancer, there are two organizations in particular that she mentioned to me over Skype. The first is a U.S.-based organization called the Metastatic Breast Cancer Network, which, according to Tiva, has a tremendous amount of really useful information, and then a volunteer-run organization called MetaViber, where all donations go toward metastatic breast cancer research. Our thanks to Tiva Harrison and everyone at Creative Mornings. Next week, we'll hear from Austin, Texas icon and the self-proclaimed queen of weird, Arilyn Hughes. I had one foot in the door of the 50s, the black and white door, that said, accept the status quo, 
and follow the teachings of your church and your family and your community. But then over here was the door painted in psychedelic colors that said, if you go through this door, you get to color outside the lines and you can abandon the rituals and the beliefs of the tribe that I had grown up in. This episode was produced and edited by S. Mateo with sound engineering, mixing, and original score by Devin C. Johnson at Little Library Studios in collaboration with S. Mateo Music. This week's rooster comes courtesy of Haley in Brooklyn, New York. If you like what we do here, please head over to the iTunes podcast page and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at Creative Morning. Remember, it's singular. And use hashtag PodcastCM when you tweet at us. For a complete archive of talks, or just to get involved, go to creativemornings.com.